right, welcome to Rev Reads. We have another author interview today and one that I am really excited about. We're talking to J.B. Hickson. J.B. is the president and founder of NBW Ministries. NBW stands for Not By Works. So if you want to be getting into the freeness and the grace of the gospel, uh, J.B. is going to point you in that direction. And he is also the teaching pastor of Plum Creek Chapel. And so we are pleased to have JB here today. JB, thank you and welcome so much to uh, being on Rev Reads today. Sean, thanks so much. It's it's great to be with you. I really appreciate you uh, you having me on and I appreciate your heart. So I can't wait to, to have a great discussion. No, so I am thrilled about your discuss about uh, to discuss this. So we're talking about uh, getting the gospel wrong, which is a book that JB wrote uh was it over 20 years that you wrote the first edition of it? Because the edition I have is 2013. So um, I, yeah, the first earlier version, the first edition came out in book form in 07, if I remember right. But it was my PhD dissertation, which I worked on from roughly 2001 to 2007 at, at Baptist Bible Seminary under Dr. Mike Stallard. And so, yeah, it definitely goes back over 20 years uh, to the first form of that book. Yeah. So what I love about this book is that postmodernism has kind of been something I've hit on a whole bunch on my channel, uh, issues with what postmodernism does to the church, um, because critical theory, queer theory, uh, all of those views are all, this all those are all postmodern theories, and that's what's kind of infiltrating the church right now. And so it was cool to read your book, because your book is blowing the whistle on postmodernism when postmodernism had not infiltrated society in the same way that it has today. So that made it a really cool read uh, to sort of see somebody saying, look at this, this is coming. Like right. postmodernism is going to inf inflict us all. And, and you had it there that that's what's going to get the gospel wrong coming up in the next 20 years. So it was kind of cool to look back and see something that's super relevant. Uh, yeah. And then you seeing it coming from back then. Yeah, I mean, most people, uh, historians would peg the the start of the postmodern era uh, at roughly 1989. I mean, there's not like there's not a thus saith the Lord date. But, you know, as you look back and see kind of cultural trends, it seems like it sort of coincided with the dawn of the Internet. And, you know, Bill Clinton was the first postmodern president who was elected after the postmodern era. But um yeah, I mean, there's different terms today, post-Christian, post-truth. You, you've you've seen them all, but the bottom line is it's an era where truth is is relative and everybody has their own little t truth. And so, you know, the gospel, which is the power of God to salvation, the Bible tells us, uh, if you start applying that principle to something as, as critical and important as one's eternal destiny, then you're going to end up all over the map in, in how you get there. And that's kind of the premise of the book. Yeah. And so what I want to start off with talking about this, since the book's really about how postmodernism gets the gospel wrong, we've mentioned it a couple of times. I wonder if you could just share with us just a really brief, uh, what is postmodernism? Yeah. So uh, it's a historical term. Uh, so most historians will categorize or break down human history into three broad categories. So you've got the uh, pre-modern era, which is everything really up until uh, the Enlightenment, the, the scientific revolution, those types of, of times. And uh, then you've got, uh, so basically up until maybe people would put it at 1789, uh, the storming of the Bastille and the French Revolution. Yeah. And then we had a very, sh relatively speaking, short-lived time called the modern era. And in the modern era, uh, the debate came, became about the source of truth. Is it God's revelation, the Bible, or is it science, reason, that kind of thing? Yeah. Prior to the modern era, during the pre-modern era, even unbelievers, even secularists understood there was a God, there was providence. They they might, you know, pray to him in their own way. They would, when the circuit riding preacher would come to town, they would, you know, stop everything and go listen, even though they might not know the Lord Jesus as their savior. Uh, there was just an awareness of of some higher power that was kind of ruling things. But with the onset of the modern era, that they began to scoff and 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 make fun of and deride Christians on the Bible. And, and so the, it really was a key shift 
that we saw manifest in the church and in seminaries and Bible colleges around the turn of the 20th century with the rise of higher criticism. And so they began questioning the miracles of scripture, questioning the deity of Christ, questioning the virgin birth. Uh, the Bible kind of just got marginalized and set aside. Uh, but by the 1980s, uh, you had uh, the debate was no longer about what is the source of truth. Is it science and reason? Does science trump the Bible, in other words? Uh, or is it the Bible? The, the, the issue became really truth is whatever you want it to be for yourself. Everybody has their own bias, their own perspective. So that's the postmodern era. So you have the pre-modern up until, roughly speaking, the late 18th century. You had the modern era up until roughly 1989. And now you're in the postmodern era. And most churches today have really capitulated uh, to the, the postmodern mindset. It's uh, it's one of those things, I think I cite this somewhere in the book, or if not, I've used it in presentations, but it's like the old Japanese proverb, if you want to know about water, don't ask a fish. And, you know, we are so, yeah. in, you know, we're so, in, in, you know, con conditioned and, and influenced by postmodern thinking that it comes out sometimes even when we don't realize it. So what do you think are some ways that postmodernism has made the church different today in comparison to how it was in the 70s, 80s, that modern era? Yeah, I mean, obviously in America, in the Western church, back in the you know 40s, 50s, 60s, you, you really had the modernist versus the fundamentalist movement where there was a, a group of people who said, we're going to stand firm on the word of God and we're not going to you know, uh, get into some of these uh, secular views. We're not going to reject the miracles. We're not going to bring evolution into the Bible and so forth. Um, unfortunately, fundamentalism in some ways ended up drawing lines that maybe go beyond what the Bible draws. So you got to define what you mean by fundamentalism today. But uh, I think the biggest manifestations of postmodern thinking are just in this focus shifting away from the truth of God's word, which is fundamentally what the church is here for. The church is here to teach the word of God, to uh, teach the gospel to the lost and help believers grow up into spiritual maturity through the teaching of God's word. So it's the sufficiency of the word of God. It's standing firm on the word of God. It's, it's thus saith the Lord. Postmodern churches today have shifted that focus onto how can we make people feel better? We don't want to offend. We will sooner yeah. compromise the truth of God's word than offend somebody. And so the standard of a successful church today has become you know, can you go there and not be offended? Well, you know, I believe, and I suspect you and your listeners agree with me, that if you go to a church today and you're not a believer, if you're not offended, then that church is not doing their job because, you know, the gospel by definition offends. It calls people to recognize they're a sinner and that sin comes with a steep penalty, which is eternal separation from a holy God and a literal place of torment called hell. And it tells people the good news, which is that God sent his son Jesus to die in their place on the cross, rise from the dead, defeating death, hell, and the grave, and offer to them uh, the free gift of eternal life if they'll simply trust him for it. So um, we don't want to focus on not offending people. Now, I mean, there, this all can be nuanced, of course. You don't want to oh, yeah. try to offend, right? You don't want to purposely offend. That's different, but. Get up there and scream about how everybody's dressed and, uh, and you right. know toss people out for no reason. Yeah, we don't want to do that, but we want to be clear on the truth. And you're right. The truth can be offensive. And that's the key today. We don't want to offend everyone. We want to, to feel good about. And I think also you want people to feel good about their own truth. Like you want them to feel good about how they feel about themselves. Right. Uh, yeah. That's sort of the, the, how, how postmodernism works. And they, they get to, they get to decide what you mean by what you say. So you could have the purest oh, yeah, motives and yeah. not mean any offense whatsoever. And yet if it, if they take offense, then suddenly you're the guilty party. Yeah. Uh, so it, it's, it's goes into sort of the same idea of reader response hermeneutics, that the meaning resides with the listener or reader rather than with the author or speaker. Uh, but, you know, to be fair, and I think I talk about this in the book, honestly, I, I can't remember, but I know I've talked about it in, in plenty of places. You know, there are positives that we learned as a local church from the postmodern movement that that we can be that we can take away, and that such as in the past, people were in in, the, in a lot of conservative 
Bible-based churches were uh, could care less about the way the church looked. You know, you'd go into these churches, they'd have shag green carpet and orange pews and curtains and candelabras and things that were just not in keeping with the times. Uh, and people would update their their houses. They'd put new carpet, and new paint and thing, but they would, they, the church was somehow like you couldn't yeah. do that. And as the culture changed, uh, the church didn't. And, and so unfortunately, a lot of people associated some of the non-essentials with the essentials. And they thought, well, if we, if we repaint our church and make it look comfortable and, and excellent and strive for excellence in all that we do, somehow we're compromising. That's not true at all. I mean, uh, times change. And, and certainly the church is different today than it was. I mean, it's an easy point to make. I mean, like Ryrie used to say, if you didn't bring a goat with you to church on Sunday, then, you know, you're a dispensation. <laughs> you know, you know, times change. So why, why are we so resistant to kind of use more technology and use, use the positive yeah. things? So, so I think, you know, we have to nuance it a little bit there, but fundamentally it was about an, an abandonment of, of the truth and the standard. Yeah. So one of the interesting things about looking at church history, um, I think starting with the book of Revelation, uh, with the letters to the seven churches, is that one thing about the church through all the eras is we go in line with the culture. Like that's what the problem with was multiple of those seven churches, their issues where they were just living basically like the people in those cities that they were in. And then also you'd have like uh, Luther and Calvin, a lot of their missteps at the Reformation were um, not going sola scriptura and going in line with the culture and the time. And so they were just being pulled along with it. So our problem today is how easily we can be pulled along in this postmodern mindset. So do you have any suggestions, uh, strategies maybe that could help us to stand fast in a culture that's going to pull us in a way toward postmodernism? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the first question that we should always ask in any situation or in when making any decision uh, is, what does the Bible say? I mean, it's got to begin there. And if you can't justify what you're doing as a ministry practice or a new initiative or program or whatever, uh, biblically, then that, that should cause a problem. I think the other advice I would give is um, we live in a very emotionally charged time and on many issues not just theological issues, people have very strong feelings. And so we have to be careful. I did a message years ago that that's uh, still out there floating around a video called Defending Grace Graciously. And what I found is that sometimes guys that defend the free grace position can be some of the most ungracious people out there. And so I think we've got to find a way to passionately and steadfastly defend the truth of God's word, but do it in a way that is that is gracious. And not that we capitulate to false views, but you know, you can attack a view without attacking a person. And that was a lesson that I had to learn the hard way. Because in my younger years, I was very personally attacking, very ad hominem attacks, pejorative attacks. Uh, and actually it was Dr. Mike Stallard who really helped me kind of think through that. And you know, we tend to think people who disagree with us on even very important non-negotiable issues, we tend to think of them as, you know, having horns and a pitchfork. Uh, but then you meet them and you find out, you know, they're they're normal people. They're nice people. They're just wrong. And so we want to <laughs> we just we want to be careful to uh, to just to not, you know, pick on them or call them ugly or insult their mother. We want to just say this is why you know, I cannot abide what you're saying. And this is why I think you're wrong biblically. And, and sometimes that calls us to part company with ways. I mean, I just talked a couple of weeks ago at our home church uh, on the doctrine of separation because we were going through Nehemiah and it was kind of came up in that context. And so um, you got to be willing to, to separate when, when not separating would cause you to compromise. And also, you know, a good point, um, sort of follow up on what you said, that's, that's an important reminder with that. If you do it the right way, like trying to be gracious, as you said, and, and thoughtful in what you do, sometimes you learn that somebody that someone else said, avoid them because they're the plague. Uh, they're the devil with the pitchfork. If you will uh, meet them and get to know them in person and then read 
there and interact with their teaching on the word of God, you may find out that they are actually holding the truth and they're not the devil with the pitchfork as something that I've learned from meeting some people in the free grace community that I've, I've, I've was told beforehand, watch out for those people. And then you meet them and you're like, Oh, maybe they're not the devil with the pitchfork. And, exactly. Uh, yep. Well said. JB, you may be one of those people that uh, somebody said as uh, could be a devil with a pitchfork, but it turns out that you might not be that guy to turn out. With, so. Oh, I've, I've, my name is Mud out there in some uh, <laughs> because because I dared to suggest that a person has to know Jesus died and rose again for their sins to be saved. I mean, how dare I? And uh, and that for that reason alone, people have just said all kinds of manner of evil things about me. But uh, that's okay, you know. Um, you know, like the old Saturday Night Live skit, you know, I'm not, I'm a pretty nice guy and people like me. So, you know, if some don't, so whatever, right? <laughs> well, that's, that is an ideal transition to what I wanted to talk about next. We've, we've covered some postmodernism and how to resist it. Um, but I want to talk about in getting the gospel wrong, uh, what you say is the gospel in this book, which you were just bringing up. And so I was wondering if you could share your, your five points that you have that you say, this is what you got to include if you're talking about the good news. Yeah, you know, I'd be glad to. To me, it's not so much about the number five or, uh, you know, uh, a number of any sort. Uh, it's it's what what is the core essence of the gospel. Yeah. And so just for, you know, uh, presentation's sake in the Bible, I try to distill it down to to five core things. But that's there's nothing magical about those that number. You know, you can uh, you know, you can. Uh, to combine some and make it three core elements or to expand some, make it six or seven. Um, but essentially it's that Jesus Christ. So no Jesus, no gospel. You got to have Jesus in there somewhere. And so that gets into sort of the inclusivist, you know, view of postmodern teaching. Um, the second is that he's the son of God. And now, again, that doesn't mean you have to have a fully developed Christology and, you know, have a seminary level, you know, doctoral level understanding of all that relates to the doctrine of Christology. But at the very minimum, you have to know that the guy who's offering you eternal life is not just another man. I mean, he, he's that's what distinguishes who Jesus is. Uh, he is the, the son of God. Um, so a lot of people in some of the fringe free grace camp uh, called that, you know, checklist theology. You got to know doctrine and, you know, to be able to be saved, which none of that was true. Uh, it's just that the Bible is pretty clear that there is a meaning behind the name. You're not believing in some guy named Jesus down in Mexico to save you. You're believing in a particular Jesus. Who is he? He's the son of God. And that means he's different. He defeated death. You know, I was uh, six years old when I was saved, uh, came to faith, and uh, uh, I didn't know, you know, a, a minute fraction of what I've come to know as I've grown in the Word and grown in the Lord. But I knew that Jesus was not just some other guy, that he was somehow had, had risen from the dead um, and, 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 and defeated death. So, uh, so Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and then the next would be died and rose again. Um, Unfortunately, there are people out there suggesting you don't have to believe in the resurrection to be saved, which is just baffling to me when it's so clear in, in passages like Romans 3, uh, 24, or, uh, several passages, you know, he was raised for our justification. Um, if, if Christ is not raised, our faith is in vain, Paul said. Uh, so uh, he died and rose again. Uh, and then the, the fourth element would be uh, the, the, for our, to pay our personal penalty for sin. And this is where, you know, again, I took some criticism from some fringe free grace people who who really don't think sin is an issue. You don't even have to know you're a sinner. In fact, one uh, guy that was uh, pretty uh, used to be a very close friend of mine. We're still friendly, but he he I went to a message of his at an ETS conference in San Diego one time, and his title was "Our Evangelism Must Be Exegetically Correct." And one of his main points was that you should never bring up sin when sharing the gospel with people. And uh, I still have the, the audio recording of that. He does not believe uh, that sin is an issue. Well, I'm here to tell you that's not what the Bible teaches. You have to know you're a sinner. If you're not acknowledging your sin, then you don't need a savior. Um, you know, salvation has to have a context. Salvation is deliverance in the context of eternal salvation. We're talking about deliverance from the penalty of sin. So 
you don't have to stop sinning to get saved. In fact, you can't stop sinning to be saved. You don't have to promise to stop sinning or pledge to stop sinning or turn away from all your sins. Nothing you can do, but you do have to know you are a sinner. And that yeah. very reality is what requires you to need a savior. And only Jesus has the power to forgive sin. Uh, he, he paid your sin debt on the cross uh, fully. And then having defeated death when he rose again, he now has the right to give that eternal life to anyone who believes in him uh, for it. So uh, so you got to know that you, you know he died and rose again to pay your personal penalty for sin. And then the last part is that you know you have to know that it's exclusive, right? That it's not just you know a buffet line at, at Luby's where you know you can believe that Jesus died and rose again for your sins, or you can believe in the five pillars of Islam, or you can believe in the seven sacraments, or you can. It's not multiple ways. As long as you know you pick one of the right ones, that'll get you in. But there's an exclusive nature uh, to it. And then uh, the the other, I guess I might have merged two there. You're looking at the book, but the other aspect that is so critical is the eternal aspect of it, that what you are receiving is by its nature eternal life. Jesus didn't die on the cross for your sins just so that you could be happy and healthy and wealthy here on earth, right? He didn't die just to make you have a comfortable life or meaning and purpose in life. He died to give you eternal life, which we get the moment we get saved. We don't get eternal life when we die. We get eternal life the moment we believe the gospel. So yeah, those are the core essence of what I talk about in the gospel, kind of the irreducible minimum. Um, and if any of those things are absent, I think it's a false gospel. And I agree. And I, I what I like about your minimum is one, you took a couple, you took a few minutes to flush it out, but you could also at the same time state it in a single sentence. Sure. So it's not like it's not like you you need to understand all of this stuff. So yeah. I love that. Yeah, Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. You can state the essence of the gospel in ten words or less, but you can explain how a person comes to eternal life in a sentence or two. It's pretty simple. Jesus, you're a sinner. You need a savior. Jesus Christ died to pay your personal penalty for sin, and uh, he rose from the dead the third day. And if you'll trust in him, he'll forgive your sin and give you the gift of eternal life. It, it's not complicated. That's why Jesus said, "Let the little children come unto me." Yeah. It's so simple a child can understand it. And I, to me, that's the the so simple a child can understand it. To me, that's one of the should be one of the calling cards of a good, not only view of the gospel is that it should be childlike, understandable, but also a good presentation of the gospel. Why should we? Why should we muddy up the gospel by turning it into things that confuse people and make it harder for them to understand what Jesus did? I mean, one of my biggest. I guess, pet peeves, if somebody wants to talk about the gospel, they go to the story of the rich young ruler where right. Jesus tells him to sell all that he has uh, and follow yeah. him. And then, and then he'll be saved. Cause it's like, I don't think you presenting the gospel sold all that you have and then follow Jesus. And uh, yeah. how, how would that even make sense to a seven-year-old child? Yeah. Um, yeah. They do the same thing with some of the prophetic passages, like uh, the, talents, you know, that you got to be nice to less fortunate people, give them a cup of water and you'll go to heaven, you know, that kind of thing. But yeah, no, it's, it's all about your own personal uh, sin. Everybody has a sin debt, no doubt about it. We're all born dead in our trespasses and sin. Ecclesiastes 7 20 says there's not a righteous man on earth who does what is right and does not sin. And uh, the penalty for that sin is eternal separation from a holy God. Uh, how are we going to solve that problem? We can't solve it ourselves, but Jesus solved it. Uh, now, where, and this may segue into something else I know you wanted to talk about, but another key factor here is that there is one thing you have to do to accept the gift. You, it's not automatic. Jesus' yeah. death on the cross doesn't automatically save everybody. Uh, we have free will, and we had the free choice to sin. Adam and Eve chose to sin, and consequently, we're all sinners. We're born in our sin. Um but we also have to choose to receive the gift. A forced gift is no gift at all. Uh, so uh, that that speaks to the Calvinistic view that you know you're either in or you're out. Faith is not not an instrumental cause of eternal life. It's an involuntary response to something God yeah. does through nothing of your own. So you just kind of cross your fingers and hope for the best. And uh, you know maybe but, he'll maybe he'll give me the gift. Maybe I'm one of them. I maybe, just maybe, maybe I'll get the faith. 
Yeah. Um, but faith's not the gift. Faith is, is the means of receiving it. Right. So uh, so that's that's a, a very important uh, you know factor of the grace message. So I want to talk a little bit more about that faith in, in, a, in a couple of minutes. The, the, but before I get to that, I want to stay on the five points for just one more second um, or a couple more seconds, however long you want to take to talk about this. But I want to just I was wanting to get your thoughts on what you think are the benefits of of making the gospel as simple as it can, boiling it down to those things and saying this is the gospel and not adding like there's a whole bunch of extremely important things that we would all say we would both say are crucial. I mean, inspiration of the Bible. Uh, crucial, God creating the world, crucial, uh, the eternal state that we're going to have, both heaven and Lake of Fireside, crucial, but those aren't in the gospel. So what's the benefit of saying, okay, I've taken the core of the gospel and sort of narrowed it down to what it is? So so let me outline for folks uh, the book, because I, I don't think we, we've done that at the, uh, at the outset here, and that will kind of help them as I answer that question. So the book is called Getting the Gospel Wrong, The Evangelical Crisis No One is Talking About. And if we have time, I'd love to talk about the genesis of why that, why I wrote the book and what caused me to be interested in that. But um, the, the I start out in the book with the first couple of chapters kind of introducing our cultural issues with postmodernism like we've already talked about. And then I spend a great deal of time in the biblical text explaining exegetically what is the gospel and what does it mean to believe the gospel? So you have to define some pretty key terms, gospel and faith. And uh, so I, I, having laid the foundation then, uh, and that's a pretty meaty section, a lengthy section, we come up with this template like you just talked about, uh, the, the, you know, what I, what I kind of distill down to five key points. And I just reiterated that. Uh, and then that's the template. And so then I have six chapters each one of them evaluating a modern, uh, contemporary, I should say, approach to the gospel, and does it measure up? Does it fit the standard? You know, in in what ways, if any, does it deviate from this uh, template that the Bible so plainly gives us about what is the gospel and what does it mean to believe the gospel? And so, it's really a, a testimony on, you know, all these false gospels that are running around out there. So I have six of those. And then I kind of wrap it up with some suggestive correctives and, and things like that. So I think the benefit is the same benefit uh, that the Word of God gives us in every walk of life. And that is, it is the only standard. So by by asking the question, what is the core essence of the gospel? It keeps us focused. Uh, it allows us to evaluate uh other gospel methods like gospel tracts, uh, places you know that, that share the gospel, and it sort of raises a flag when those don't measure up. And you know, as a pastor and Bible teacher and, and conference speaker for the last thirty-five years, I've been you know countless occasions where I've been in the in a setting where someone is is not giving a clear gospel. Remember, the, the our uh, core value at Not By Works Ministries is the clarity, accuracy, and urgency of the gospel. That's our our vision. And so because I kind of have my uh, a firm grasp on what is the gospel, it's very easy to identify and notice when people give a false gospel. And so then, depending on the setting, you have a, an opportunity to, you know, without being confrontational and without maybe causing a scene, but just kind of reiterate it. So, uh, been in lots of conferences where the speaker right before me obliterates the gospel, uh, you know, prophecy conferences, things like that. Yeah. And I don't get up and call them out. Oh, did you hear what that heretic said? I don't even mention their name. I just preach the gospel. And yeah. so, you know, that's why I love to go last because I know that folks at a conference are going to, they're going to leave hearing, you know, like the, the clear gospel at the, the end. Gospel. Yeah. Amen. So I think there's a lot of advantages to knowing the truth and owning the truth. Um, you know, Romans 1.16 is a, is a key passage, and I know a lot of people, especially in the free grace camp, have, I think, not uh, would not agree with me on this, but I think they're wrong. Uh, but, you know, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it, the gospel, is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes it. So if you have to believe the gospel to be saved, and you're preaching a false gospel, that's a problem. So that we've got you're, you're you're losing the power of the whole proclamation. Like what's the point that's... of proclaiming a powerless 
That's totally well said, Sean. Well said. I mean, you know, it's not, we can't argue people into the faith. It's not yeah. my job to convince people to be saved. I've just got to put the gospel out there. It's like D.L. Moody said, you know, the gospel is like a lion. All you got to do is open the door of the cage and get out of the way. And then the Holy Spirit takes it from there. And so, you know, I think if we, it starts with, with getting the gospel right. And, and then obviously there's, all kinds of apologetics issues and evangelistic techniques. And I've, I've taught about that and done evangelism training yeah. conferences. There's more to it just from a, you know, a, a, a logistical standpoint, but it starts with, are you preaching a clear gospel? And if you're not preaching a clear gospel, everything after that is irrelevant, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, so we, we talked about boiling it down to that small amount, but what happens if you boil it down too far? Well, you leave you start out or, to strip things away. Yeah, you leave out salvific components of the gospel. So, for example, um, people. This one. We'll start with this one, even though it's a little bit more complex. But you know, I'm sure you know because you've studied this extensively. It's not believing that Jesus died and rose again that saves you. A lot of people believe that. A lot oh of yeah, people, yeah. Satan believes that, right? It's believing that he died and rose again to pay your personal penalty for sin. That's where you got to get into the part of I know I'm a sinner and I need a savior. So uh, just believing the historical reality of the death and resurrection of a man named Jesus isn't going to save you. So if you leave out the sin part, well, that's not a complete gospel. If you leave out uh, you know, the faith part, you know, how do you, you, how do you respond to that? Well, I believe, which is confidence or assurance that he did it for me and that he alone, as I said, the exclusive commandment, he alone is the one uh, who can, can save me. So any one of those aspects, if you strip it away, um, uh, then, then you've, you've got a powerless gospel. I mean, and a good example of that is like the Islam has a partial gospel because sure. they believe some right things about Jesus. They believe in the second coming of Jesus. And so they see Jesus as a prophet. They got a lot of a lot of the components, but they don't have the full gospel. So therefore, Islam is powerless to save. Yeah. And so it's another another illustration. So you're right. Yeah, we got to make sure that we have all of those different pieces. And if we don't, we're really robbing people of the power that we enjoy ourselves. Yeah, for sure. So um, so the, the next chapter after the gospel, you cover the nature of saving faith, um, which has been a big issue for me that I've been studying a lot on. You started talking about Gordon Clark's book on uh, faith and saving faith in that chapter. And uh, that, that book is, he, I mean, that man drives home um, oh, yeah. the fact that uh, the, the nature of faith and, and what it is. Um, and so I just wonder, uh, what do you think is, so how does understanding the nature of faith become more important in this postmodern culture? So very great question. And I'd love to kind of talk about this for a minute. So, um, it's one thing to understand the gospel correctly, but it's another thing to understand what it means to believe the gospel, because ever since the Protestant Reformation, uh, the devil has done a great job, as 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says, blinding men's hearts to the gospel. And one of the ways he's doing that is by redefining faith. So um, unfortunately, and I, and I would suspect that a lot of our listeners, I know a lot of our listeners, you know, think this uh, and or have been taught this and, and presumably some of yours as well. Uh, a lot of people think that to believe the gospel you have to believe it in a certain way. It's not just confidence that it's true, but you've got to commit, promise, pledge, make him Lord. Uh, and, and not to get too down into the weeds here or too granular, but it's very important to understand this principle because it goes back to the Reformation. So the reformers who were right to break away from the church, the Roman church, uh, over you know the indulgences and works-based salvation— carried with them some of the baggage. And what they did is they redefined the meaning of faith. Uh, and they they added three components that, in their view, must be present in faith for it to be real. And if you don't have all three of these aspects when you're believing the gospel, then you're not saved. And they were, they were Latin terms. That was the language of the day. Uh, and they were uh, noticia, census, and fiducia. And you don't need to remember those terms, but just remember the concept. And what, the, what they're saying is, in order to really believe, 
you've got to, number one, comprehend the gospel. That's noticia. Well, yeah, no problem there, obviously. Yeah, yeah. It kind of goes without saying you don't really need a separate point for that. If you don't understand something, you can't believe it. Right? <laughs> uh, but anyway, that's what they did, noticia. The second one is to believe it, a census, to assent to the truthfulness of it. That's where, that's the root of the word assent. So yeah, no problem there. You've got to understand it and believe it. So that's where I would stop. That's what faith is. You know? Oh yeah, I agree. Yeah. But they add this very key third component. It's like the third leg to a stool. And in their view, without it, that stool's going to topple over and you're not saved. And that third component, fiducia, is what they call making a conscious volitional decision to follow and obey the gospel, to pledge or commit to the gospel. And I, I cite in the book, Many, many, many examples of Reformed theologians, Calvinists, who use the term fiducia very frequently throughout their writings to explain that if someone claims to be a Christian, but they're not living the Christian life, or maybe they're in a in a long state of carnality, or they're struggling, they're backslidden, they'll say, well, he didn't have fiducia, or she didn't have fiducia when she believed the gospel, therefore their faith was spurious. And again, that's not a biblical term. That's a term they've made up, this concept of spurious faith. So they believe, you know, those who hold this view, like Calvinists, that it's not what or who you believe that saves you. It's how you believe. You have to believe it the right way. And, and that's the nature of saving faith in their mind. If, if you don't have fiducia, if you're not willing to follow Christ, obey him, make him Lord, pledge obedience, forsake all your sins, all these these volitional things. It's like it's like salvation to them is a two-way contract, a bilateral contract where we bring something to the table. And then as long as we bring enough, he says, okay, you're in. But the problem with that is salvation is by no means a bilateral contract. It's a unilateral gift. It's nothing in our hand we bring simply to the cross we cling. And we come to the table empty-handed and we say, Lord, I'm a dirty, rotten, filthy sinner. I can't save myself. I need a savior. And, and God says, well, guess what? I've got just the thing. My son, Jesus, came to the earth, lived a perfect, holy, sinless life, yet still died on the cross to pay your personal penalty for sins. And not only yours, but the sins of the whole world. And if you'll place your faith in him, he can forgive you because he had the room on his shoulders for your sin penalty. You don't have it. Uh, and so it's it's there's not a, there's not this concept of fiducia as the reformers claimed faith just means faith if you look it up in any lexicon it means the confidence or assurance in some stated or implied truth it's you either believe something or you don't you don't have to believe it a certain way it's not like if you believe the gospel you're not saved but if you really 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 believe it now you're saved <laughs> you know it doesn't work that way and yet and yet that false notion is so entrenched in most people's mindset they'll i can't tell you how many times i hear it people come up to me and say you know, my son or daughter got saved as a child, but now they're not walking with the Lord. I, I guess they didn't really believe. Well, what is that? I mean, we know what we believe. It's not, in fact, yeah. it's a phenomenological fallacy to not know what you believe, unless you're, you have a mental incapacity of some kind or something that you, you know, if, if I ask you, do you believe X? You can answer the question. The answer is always going to be, yes, I believe it. No, I don't believe it. Or you might say, I don't know yet whether I believe it, which is de facto I don't believe it. So you either believe something or you don't. Uh, no one's going to go, well, I think I believe it. I'm not really sure. I'll have to give it you know, 10 years to see if I live out a godly life, and then I'll let you know if I've really believed it. It just doesn't work that way. Yeah, and I think also the one thing that I always like to remind people when I get in these discussions too is that like they'll say, well, if you believe it, then you'll act on it. The problem is, is that all we need is regular life to know that people believe things all the time that they don't follow through on. Like that is just a regular part of human nature. Like, sure. Yeah. People know they should save for retirement, but then they don't save for retirement, even though they believe they should. And so it's just, it's how yeah. we're hardwired. And so yeah, no, you, I just you, I find it crazy when they do that. Yeah. You don't have to act on your belief for it to be real. That's what we're saying here. And unfortunately, again, that's a false notion that people believe. You know, people believe cigarettes will kill you, but they still smoke cigarettes. And you would never say to a person that's smoking cigarettes, uh, well, you don't believe, you must not believe they'll kill you. They'll go, well, no, I mean, the science is pretty clear. I think it's bad for your health. Well, if you thought it was bad for your health, you wouldn't smoke. Well, no, it's, it's not that simple. We often 
act inconsistent with what we believe. It happens all the time. So belief, the reality and, and of belief isn't tied to some later behavior. Now, a normal, healthy Christian who has, in fact, been saved by faith alone in Christ alone, a uh, normal, healthy believer is going to live out the new life that's within them. The Spirit of God is within them. That's going to walk in the Spirit, not after the flesh. That's normal. That's what every Christian should do. But the minute you change that should to that's what every Christian must do, or his faith is spurious and he's not really a Christian, well, then you've crossed a line that the Bible doesn't teach because the fact is Christians sin. And there's no sin that an unbeliever can commit that a believer might not also commit if he's living in the flesh, if he's walking in the flesh. And so um, doesn't make it right. I mean, uh, to clarify, and I'm, and I'm sure I don't need to clarify this, but just to, to master the obvious, we're not promoting sin. Sin is bad. I, I want to go on record. Oh, as yeah, I'm yeah. Sin. <laughs> it, I, JB, you, you should say the obvious because there's probably going to be somebody who will watch this through and be like, these yeah. guys are encouraging sin. So yeah. you should yeah, say they, the they will. Believe me, you've seen it. I've seen it. And uh, what I'm saying is sin, is, sin matters. Sin absolutely yeah. is a big deal. But it does not matter to a believer in terms of your eternal destiny. Yeah. Because if something we do later can undo what Jesus promised us, Jesus said in John 10, 28, I give you eternal life, present possession, and you shall never perish. And as you know, the, in the Greek there, uh, the, the never is, is a double negative. It's no never. You shall never perish forever, right? So, I mean, that's, when you, that's what he said. Now, either he meant that or he didn't. He didn't say... I give you the prospect for eternal life as long as you live out your days and don't have any prolonged periods of sinfulness. As long as you do that, then I'll... He didn't say I give you the, the potential or the possibility of, of eternal He said, I give you present possession, eternal life. So uh, all we're saying is that to make one's eternal destiny somehow hang in the balance to, to, and be determined by how you behave uh, is, is, is not biblical. Now, you know, the, the Calvinism and Arminianism are really two extremes that both pave the road back to a works-based salvation, as I've talked about in the book. Um, Arminianism uh, says that you've got to do good works to get into heaven, plain and simple, no bones about oh, yeah. it, right up front, you're saved by works. Calvinism says, no, 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 you fool. Of course, you're not saved by works. We know that. But you've got to do good works or you never were saved to begin with. <laughs> so either way, you're making works the arbiter of whether you get into heaven. In one case, they say, do good works or you're not saved. The other say, do good works or you weren't saved. I mean, it's, it's you end up in the same spot. The biblical position is that salvation is an absolute free gift. Romans 5 makes that clear, as does the whole testimony of Scripture. And free means no strings attached. It is absolutely free. Whosoever will, let him come drink of the water of life freely, right? Uh, so uh, free means free. The minute you start attaching conditions to it, it's no longer a gift. It's a contract. And Jesus didn't die on the cross so that we could turn around and have to sign some contract if we want to get to heaven. He died on the cross to pay in full our sin debt. Yeah. And so you're right. So talking, going back to, to making sure we're staying on, on the faith, the whole thing with faith is that once you begin to redefine it in different ways, uh, every, I think every redefinition that somebody does for it, whether no matter what group you're in, like you said, you brought up both Calvinists and Arminius would be like, we're opposite sides of this. Um, but no matter how you redefine it, the redefinition always brings works into faith. Yeah. And that's always the it's, same, the same thing. Yeah. yeah. It's human nature. I mean, we, yeah. we, we have a hard time believing we can get something as valuable as eternal life for nothing, but it, it costs God, his own son. It cost Jesus his life, but it cost you and me nothing. That's the nature of a gift. <laughs> well, and, and I mean, I mean, I don't, we do get a little uncomfortable receiving gifts for nothing. Like I'm not uncomfortable when my church gives me my paycheck every two weeks for my pay for salary, but on Pastor Appreciation Sunday, when they give me a gift, that's uncomfortable to receive. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it's, but we got to swallow our pride and receive the gift. And, you know, it's what people have a hard time to do with the gospel. Yeah, I mean, if I were to, to to offer you a birthday present, when's your birthday? What month? 
January 27th. Okay, good. So it's not any time close, so I don't have to deliver on this illustration. You nice. can forget. Uh, yeah, good. So let's say it was your birthday and I offer you a gift and I'm about, and I'm handing it to you and you're about to take it. And then I pull it back and I say, now wait, Sean, before you take this gift, here's what I need from you. Suddenly it's no longer a gift. Yeah. It's a transaction, right? And, and that's the way people, a lot of people, unfortunately, view salvation, that it's, we've got to do our part. I, I remember talking to, to someone one time years ago, and it really is etched in my mind. And I, I brought it up frequently because we spent several hours literally talking in our living room, me and my wife and this lady. Uh, she was heavily entrenched with the Calvinist viewpoint, walking her down the roads of scriptures and just talking and, 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 and trying to help her understand the freeness of salvation and really what God's grace is all about. And she was so close to really kind of having her eyes open. And at the very end, she goes, but but don't you know, don't you have to know what you're getting into? And I go, no, you don't have to know what you're getting into. You have to know what you're getting out of. You know, the gospels is, for seven-year-olds. Seven-year-olds yeah. don't know what they're getting into. Oh, no, they don't. Exactly. <laughs> so that that deals with discipleship, of course, which yeah. once you've been born again um, by faith, well, now you're a new nature, a new person. And, you know, the, and as long as you're topside this earth, if the Lord tarries is coming and you don't go the way of all flesh, you have a job to do. And that job is to, to follow Christ, to obey Christ, to wake up every day and say, what can I do to serve him better? And you, you live out your days uh, very much uh, working for the Lord. Uh, and there are many benefits of that. I've got a, a, an appendix. I think it's in the back of the book uh, on uh, uh, motivations for the believer to do good works. Is that in here? I can't remember if that's in here or not. But anyway, it's it's if not, it's on our website. Folks can go to notbyworks.org. No, there it is. Yeah, it's Appendix D. Appendix D. And it's 20, 20 or 30 different motivations for the believer to do good works. Uh, there are a lot of reasons to do good works, one of which is to earn, earn, unlike salvation, which you cannot earn, but earn rewards in heaven. That's a legitimate biblical motivation to earn blessing, to make a, to set a, a good example for others, to show gratitude for what Christ did for you, all kinds of reasons. Um, that's the Christian life in a nutshell, but none of that matters. We don't yeah. have to make some kind of a promise or pledge or commitment uh, in order to get saved. Uh, you know, Sean, I taught uh, college for six years and, and graduate school for another six and still do some adjuncting from time to time. But uh, I've used this story a lot, so our listeners will probably get tired of hearing me tell it, but it, 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 it makes the point. Uh, for a while, for several years, I was teaching Monday classes, and most of my students were adult learners. They were guys older than me at the time. Uh, I was in my 30s, and uh, these guys were all pastoring. You know, they were bivocational pastors. They would preach on Sunday, and they were coming back to school at a Bible college to earn their degree and to, to get more education and be better equipped to serve the Lord. So Mondays were always an exciting day in the classroom because these guys, many of them had come from services on Sunday. And inevitably, uh, one of the, the students would say in one of my classes, you know, hey, prof, man, we had a great, great day at church yesterday. We had six people commit their lives to Christ. And I'd always say the same thing. I would say, man, that's fantastic. Did any of them get saved? You know, and they would kind of look at me shocked and they, what do you mean? That, that's what I just said. No, no, nobody gets saved by committing their life to Christ. Find that in the scriptures. 160 oh, yeah. times the New Testament conditions eternal life upon faith, but zero times it conditions eternal life upon committing something to the Lord. Yeah, no. So, uh, yeah, great. Uh, so I loved all that on faith. Uh, that's like, so this is my favorite section of the book was what you wrote on faith. Yeah. Uh, but following that in the big majority of the book, probably, I think it was probably a little over half the book. You looked at six ways that people got the gospel wrong. So in your, um, in the book, the six ways that people get the gospel wrong, let me get to the outline for it. There's the purpose gospel made famous by, uh, the purpose driven church for Rick Warren, mm -hmm. uh, the puzzling gospel. That's just where people, the, to me, the very postmodern, you're going to have like, you know, different ways you'll state it at different times that are kind of confusing. Uh, the prosperity gospel, you know, probably have only grown since then. I shouldn't say probably, I think yeah. somebody shared, I saw a list of the top 10 sermons, uh, listened to or watched online last year all of the top 10 mm. prosperity gospel. Oh, it preaches. Yeah. You want to make a lot of money yeah. in a real big hurry? Just promise people the moon. 
and, uh, you know, and have, tell them, if you just give me all your money, you'll be better. And a lot of people will fall for it. Yep. So the next is the pluralistic gospel. That is, you know, Jesus is one way of, of multiple ways. So, uh, which, uh, Rick Warren, I think is doing a little bit of both at sometimes, uh, he's got some initiative. late Billy Graham, sadly, uh, went that way as well with the pluralistic. Gospel. Oh, now you're going to get some emails, Sean, for sure. Uh, yeah. No oh, doubt. Well, you, you stepped yeah. on the third rail there with that one. But you're <laughs> right. And I, I actually give some examples. Look, you know, Billy Graham, uh, you know, he was a believer. He's in heaven today. God used him mightily in many ways. But let's face it, we got to hold people accountable for what they say. And if you look at his own statements late in life, he clearly departed from the core essence of the gospel. I'm sorry to say, and, and I hope I don't do that. I've told my wife, look, if I ever get far adrift of the biblical gospel, just take me out back and shoot me because <laughs> me I don't want pasture, my legacy to, to be taint, tainted, you know? So. Uh, so you had the pluralistic gospel, the performance gospel, which I think in conservative churches, uh, performance gospel is probably the most popular. And those that we would see as a conservative oh. view of inspiration, in inerrancy of scripture, performance gospel is hands down easily the most common. Yeah, hands down. It's essentially the manifestation of a Calvinist mindset. Even if people don't know they're espousing a Calvinistic viewpoint, they uh, they they have become convinced that either on the front end or the back end, you've got to have some kind of performance and that it's your performance that's going to, you know, give you the thumbs up or thumbs down in eternity. And then the last one that you you lecture, you brought out in the book is the promise only gospel. That's the gospel where all you need to do is believe that Jesus promises you eternal life. And if you believe that, and we've already talked about how that's boiling the gospel down right. too far, taking away essential elements. So it's been 16 years since the last edition of this book was published. And, and I said in my critique of your book, the biggest critique I have is that not there was a problem with what you wrote when you originally wrote the book, but that the world shifted 16 years. We've gotten more and more postmodern. Uh, so out of those six, are there any that you would take away or any that you would add based on changes in the American church over the last 16 years? Yeah, that's a great question. And by the way, to clarify, the revised edition came out in 2013. So it's been 10 years since the okay. revised edition came out. Uh, and, and you know, you can get it in Kindle. You can get it on Amazon. Obviously, we think Jeff Bezos has enough money. So we sell it at notbyworks.org. And we have an outstanding online store. You can check it out there if you're interested in it. Um, and by the way, just in case finances are an issue, which we like to never make them an issue. When we go to conferences, we we certainly, you know, are happy to, to give books to people that need it. But we have some of the original edition, which was the first book I ever wrote uh, 20 plus years ago, uh, still available on our online store. And I think they're like seven or eight bucks for the first edition. And it's substantially the same. I've, it's got one less chapter. It's got a, a little bit of different content, but it's 90% the same. So if, for the budget buyer, you might consider that. But uh, that's a great question, Sean. I mean, things are rapidly unfolding. I, I think certainly there are more manifestations of sort of the postmodern uh, mindset uh, in the sense of, uh, you know, you've got, you've got the uh, emergent church Aspect. Oh, the emergent church wasn't, that was barely yeah. touching the surface at that point. Yeah, it was really in its infancy. Uh, and by the way, I've, I've shared the platform with some of those guys, uh, uh, you know, and I can tell you some personal anecdotes of, of their own comments and worldview that it's not good. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, I think really we're living in a day and age as manifested by you know, the, the big uh, 2020 pandemic when 90% of churches bowed down and worshiped at the altar of government and stopped worshiping Jesus on Easter Sunday for the first time since uh, Constantine, uh, where there's just no, no true North, no compass, no standard. Um, you know, people ask, you know, how does this affect others or how's this going to affect our attendance or how's this going to affect our tithing and giving and how's this going to affect this or that rather than what does the Bible say? Um, I don't know. What do you think? Have you seen any major trends that kind of fall outside the scope of these six? Um, I, I do think that there's uh, 
a political gospel that you could mm. add. Oh, that's so a great. You were kind of talking about it with government there, um, and that I brought that up in my review. I think there is definitely. Um, I think that the bringing politics into the church, which has always been present, like it was, it was, you know, commonplace middle ages, obviously up until, you know, the reformation when they tried to begin to make the break a little bit. Um, but I think it's coming back more um, to have a church where your gospel is whatever you think the current political movement should be. Oh no. And we're we're going to shift the gospel to whatever is the current, if it's, racism we're going to talk about racism if it's sexism we're going to talk about sexism whatever whatever is the current political hot button issue um and, and for them at that moment that will be the gospel it's it's a very unattainable gospel because it always shifts. Yeah. well let me let me elaborate on that if i may. Because by the way shame on me for not even thinking about that and that would be a great addition plus it starts with a p so that's even better you know yeah, yeah my, my alliteration would continue the political gospel um uh, first of all, and I don't, you may not agree with this, so this may be a discussion for another day, but I don't have a problem whatsoever bringing social issues into the pulpit and even bringing politics into the pulpit. I think it's a misapplication of, uh, you know, of, of the so-called separation of church and state, which isn't even found in the uh, Constitution. It's a, from a letter to the Danbury Church in Danbury, Connecticut uh, by uh, Thomas Jefferson. So, you know, I, I think we need pastors willing to speak out on moral issues from a biblical viewpoint. But where I see the political gospel, as you called it, being an issue is that it's it's this reconstructionism, this this theonomic ethics, this this viewpoint that if we can just elect enough Christians, uh, we can change the world and make it better. And then Christ will come back. It's, it's basically a re revival of, of postmodern thinking. I mean, of post-millennial thinking, uh, which is not biblical at all. Uh, and sadly, there is a sense in which a lot of Christians are easily duped and manipulated into buying whatever the so-called right-wing perspectives are. And they jump on bandwagons. I just talked about this uh, on an interview I did yesterday, uh, you know, I encourage people to read my my two of my recent books, A Spirit of the Antichrist, Volume One and Volume Two, where I break down the false left-right paradigm, the, the 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 Luciferian conspiracy, and how it impacts Washington D.C. and the President and the Senate and the Supreme Court and the Congress. So I don't want to get too far afield of our topic, but I do think there's a sense in which the gospel has become so pushed down that it's not even so much that they're twisting it overtly; it's just they're ignoring it, and it's all about. Yeah. We gotta get Trump elected, or we gotta get whoever this is elected, Obama elected. We gotta, we've gotta champion the cause of the right or the left. Uh, when you know people need to understand, you know, the right wing and the left wing are part of the same bird, in, in my view. No, and and I guess the one thing that I would say in yours is, like you said, they forget the gospel in general. I think that they're purposefully not mentioning the real gospel because they want those political issues to be how you gain salvation. Yeah, that's a good point. That's, yeah. that's how you have redemption. That so we're not going to talk about Christ, and that's why that's why I said it in the political gospel. Not to I agree with your view on church and state and how we need to talk about these things. The key is is when we make those how someone is redeemed. Like right. that's how you become right with God, and that's what I believe they do. They do that's how you have your salvation. Yeah, I think you're right, Sean. I think you're right. So. Um, so yeah, we're saying the same thing, just with slight different nuance. So uh, well, I'm yeah. glad I'm yeah. glad to know that you agree with me and Jesus on this issue. So <laughs> well, yeah, me and you and Jesus, we're yeah, uh, that's right. We're uh, okay. Well, 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 yeah. Um. Uh. So yeah. So the the political gospel. Um. The other one that I think is a gospel that's out there is, I don't know what would be the right term for it, but it's a gospel that's sort of based on education, and that if you can get the right. It's not even so much learning knowledge like math, science, reading, and writing, but you can get your mind in thoughts uh, going in the way that, you know, the, the world wants you to be thinking about things. So if you can get educated along their views on sex, educated along their views on power and authority, educated along on their views of gender um, and all of that, if you can get that right education and knowledge there's salvation in that. Yeah. Well, there, there is sort of an elite world out there that, that thinks that it's all about, you know, education. Um, 
and uh, looks down upon a less enlightened, you know, world. I think that 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 is a there's something to that. So, but you know, the I think kind of where we started is a good thing to remember, and that is once you've quantified the biblical gospel, which is not hard to do. Again, you read the Bible, it's quite clear. Uh, Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. And if you'll believe in him, he'll give you the gift of eternal life. Um, Once you've done that, then then there's no end to the number of false gospels, however popular or obscure they might be. Um, But, you know, what I've tried to do in the book is highlight, you know, a few major trends yeah. And um, so I don't know where you wanted to go next, but if we've got time, I wanted to just briefly explain kind of the whole what led me to write this book. So one one more question before that. And that is if you're if it just this would be advice to somebody who's who's watching. Um, if somebody's watching this and they realize that they are in a church that is promoting one of the false gospels we've talked about or they're seeing it beginning to enter. The, the preaching of the church, if they're seeing it come out in Sunday school classes, uh, what advice would you give to someone who might be sitting here and saying, I'm in a church that's either shifting to a wrong gospel or is a wrong gospel? What would you say to that person who finds themselves in that situation? Yeah, I mean, my initial thought is run, don't walk away from that church. I mean, but let me let me nuance it a little bit because uh, we did a podcast several months ago on non-negotiables when choosing a church. Clearly, the gospel is at the top of the list. If they're not preaching yeah. the gospel, they're not a church. I mean, that that's the, the the correct gospel. But I will say that you know there are varying degrees of of why someone might be preaching a false gospel. Uh, a lot of times, they're just sloppy. They've not really thought about these issues. They've grown up in a culture or, an, or a, a denominational background where they use terminology that they've not really stopped to think about. Well, is this really what the Bible says? Things like invite Jesus into your heart, or like I said earlier, commit your life to Christ. And a lot of times when I would talk to those guys that would say that, I would say, well, by that, don't. what do you mean? Do you mean they've believed in Jesus unto eternal life? Well, yeah, that's what we mean. Well, then why not say that? Because commit your life to Christ is very confusing. So I think if you're in a church where you've got a pastor who is approachable, teachable, humble, and you feel they're just kind of sloppy. And I don't mean that in a pejorative way. I just mean they're just careless. Let's say maybe that's a better word. Uh, then you might start by trying to talk to them and, you know, explain why this is passionate. You know, they give them a copy of my book or a lot of other great books out there that talk about these issues. Um, and just see if maybe you could, you know, maybe you could win a win a convert over to a more a focused clarity on the gospel. But if you're in a church where they are, they're dug their heels in, you know, this is, you know, this is a, a they're going to die on this hill. They're Calvinistic or whatever, any of these errors of the gospel. Then I just, I don't think it honors the Lord to stay in and support a church, uh, a church like that. All right. Thanks for, thanks for that advice. So uh, let's end now talking about, so what was your inspiration for this book? What brought yeah. about getting the gospel wrong? So what's interesting is a lot of people, and we all do this with books, they kind of breeze past the subtitle, which in the revised edition, it's the subtitle is actually at the top, just the way the artist uh, chose to, the publisher chose to arrange the front. But the, the full title of the book is Getting the Gospel Wrong. And then the subtitle is The Evangelical Crisis No One is Talking About. So what was really burdening me at the time I chose to do this for my dissertation, and the dissertation, I don't have a copy in sight. I've got one behind this green screen, but I can't really get to it. But the dissertation, as 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 with most PhD dissertations, had a much longer convoluted title, but it was something about the idea here that this is a problem that people are ignoring or just blind to. And so how it came up uh, at the time I was doing some uh, conference speaking for a free grace organization, and I was traveling the country doing regional conferences. And I was also speaking in other uh, conferences and uh, places where they weren't centered on the gospel. They were just like men's conferences, women's conferences, you know, those types of things. And so uh, frequently I would find as I was out on the road, uh, a speaker would speak, uh, they, they would give the gospel, whatever they thought it was. And the crowd would just applaud. They would cheer. They'd be thrilled. Um, And then 
I'd and the next speaker would come out. I'd be back in the green room waiting my turn. Next speaker would come out. They'd give a message on something and they'd give the gospel. And it would be diabolically opposed. I mean, completely opposite of what the previous speaker had said. And yet the audience, like a bunch of you know Stepford wives, just sat there clapping and and acting like this guy's great too. And I'm thinking, guys, did was anybody listening? I mean, even if both of them were wrong, which was frequently the case. They certainly can't both be right. They were just saying exact opposite things. And it just bothered me that the church was not showing discernment when it comes to something so important. And so that's what started me down the road. But of course, to to, to criticize false gospels, uh, you've got to first establish the standard. And so I spent, you know, a lot of time in the Greek and Hebrew text just really, you know, laying it out there. So yeah, that's what I would encourage people to, to, to do is not only guard the gospel, like Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.20, guard what's been committed to your trust, but be aware of the fact that to, to most Christians, this is not even an issue. They they don't even notice it. And that, that's the real epidemic, I think. All right. No, it's a good, uh, no, it's a good reason to write it because it's, it's crazy how we all, all of Christendom, you know, this is all Christians will talk about the importance of the gospel, but it's amazing how um, one of the things that that struck me so much about those in the free grace circles is that um, regardless of which part of the free grace movement you're in, all the groups are have great care about the gospel. Like even the ones who aren't correct about it are still sure. they're trying to be very clear and precise about what they're doing. And I think it's crazy that you get outside of free grace and the gospel becomes kind of like, you're going to hear different things and weird ways in different places. And so, yeah, yeah, no, you're right. It's, it's a, it's really a lost art and that's by design. You know, the devil, uh, the Bible tells us is blinding men's hearts to the gospel. The closer we get to the return of the Lord, the, the less uh, people are going to, to really understand and believe the, the pure gospel. Yep. Um, thank you so much. Uh, so JB, thank you for your time. Uh, the book you again bet. is Getting the Gospel Wrong, uh, The Evangelical Crisis That No One Is Talking About. I loved reading this book this year. It is a book that is, uh, it's timely because we're still in the postmodern age and he hits on all these gospel errors that people are having today. So if you want clarity on the gospel, it's a great two-way um, street to one, see the clarity in the gospel itself but then also to see all these ways that people are twisting it. So I uh, recommend that you get the book. And again, you can go to notbyworks.org uh, to go to JB's site to be able to pick up a copy of it yourself. And so uh, again, thank you so much, JB. It was a great conversation. My pleasure. Really appreciate Appreciate you you're, you know, standing firm for the truth out there in uh, Louisiana. And yeah, stay in touch. All right, we will, we will. So uh, thank you so much for viewing. And if you're new to Rev Reads, I would love for you to subscribe to our channel on YouTube. Uh, it's just youtube.com slash Rev Subscribe to stay up to date with our upcoming book reviews and have a blessed day.